With the news media reporting increasingly more data breaches and cybersecurity events, and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. We're here to help you prevent potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 78th episode of my show. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, CastBox, PodToppin, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website. Then you will be notified just as soon as each new show is available. I want to thank all of you, all of my 125,000 plus listeners now throughout the world. I truly do appreciate you tuning in. My July Privacy Professor Tips message was published at the end of July. Or actually, that was my August tips message. i got to get right on my calendar here. (laughs) Please sign up for them. I've provided them free since 2007 in an effort to increase the general awareness of information security and privacy issues and also to provide a free awareness publication that organizations can use to send to their employees as part of their awareness program. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. So today, I am covering a topic that I've had dozens of listeners send me messages and questions about. COVID-19 contact tracing privacy. Now, I was recently a visitor on the Secure World podcast. I spoke to their great host, Bruce Sussman, about this very topic. And after that show, even more questions came in to me about COVID-19 contact tracing privacy. Now, it was interesting. Some of them were from business leaders, and they were telling me that they wanted to mandate that their employees use these tools to prevent the possible spread of the virus. But also, I had some of them actually tell me they wanted to use these tools to, quote, bypass HIPAA requirements by not involving healthcare providers, end quote. So that was interesting. And and then there were some others that were expressing concerns about privacy. So several of the questions that came to me was about the claim that Apple and Google and Verizon and other smartphone providers, the claim more like a conspiracy theory maybe, but they were concerned that they had heard that all of the the tech giants were secretly putting 
COVID-19 tracking apps on their phones without giving us notice. And I've had others send me questions and messages saying that they had heard that Facebook and TikTok, Twitter, and, and other popular social media sites were pushing out COVID tracers within their app updates. Now, I don't use apps to access my social media sites. I just go straight to the websites and I use my browser to get onto them. So I can't really personally check on that, but uh, it's something that people are concerned with. And I've also had some other semi messages saying, hey, I'm worried about my Nest and Ring apps. And I'm afraid that Those apps are installing COVID tracers without our knowledge. I even had a couple of folks contact me concerned by a conspiracy theory that Bill Gates is going to microchip everyone when he gives them a (laughs) COVID-19 vaccine shot. Now, just FYI, to my knowledge, Bill Gates does not have a vaccine that he's going out there with. So I'm pretty sure that one's a conspiracy theory. But there's very valid other concerns about these, uh, the way that these tools are being used. And we do need to be concerned about privacy and security whenever people are collecting our personal data. You know, we need to ask questions and we need to do the critical thinking to determine where there are privacy concerns and where privacy is being appropriately addressed. We can't expect that we're going to learn through a meme that comes from some unknown person online. You need to really do some critical thinking here. You know, we are in what many epidemiologists and pandemic scientists and researchers say may still be the beginning of the worldwide COVID-19 pandemic. And they've indicated that one of the needed ways to get it under control is to be able to track where the infections are located and to also be able to see how they are spread. So we have the researchers, the scientists, uh, telling us that there is a valid need to do COVID-19 tracking and tracing. But also at the same time, we know that there's many other entities that want to get that data and use it for other purposes. So we really need to make sure that the privacy of the public is strongly protected while doing the COVID-19 tracking and tracing activities for the very valid purpose of trying to get the pandemic under control. So how can this be accomplished? Well, I have the perfect person to speak with about this today. Today, I'm speaking with someone who has been a guest on my show a few times before. And I must say, that those shows are some of my most listened to shows of all the shows that I've done to date. My guest today is Dr. Katina Michael. Katina is a professor at Arizona State University, and she holds a joint appointment in the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and School of Computing 
Informatics and Decisions Systems Engineering. Katina is also the director of the Society Policy Engineering Collective, or SPEC for short, and the editor-in-chief of the IEEE Transactions on Technology and Society. Katina is also a public interest technology advocate who emphasizes privacy and security by design. Now, since 1997, Katina's been studying the potential for microchipping humans for medical and non-medical applications. Katina has been funded by the Australian Research Council in the field of location-based services and the National Science Foundation to research smart cities and the future of work. And together with her husband, M.G. Michael, Katina has pioneered the concept of ubervalence in the context of smart applications and associated unintended consequences. And I first met Katina through her first book, and that's been, gosh, maybe 15 to 20 years ago. So she truly is uh, a visionary in this area. You can see more about Dr. Katina Michael in her bio that's posted with this show at my Voice America page. Katina, thank you so much for being my guest again today. Welcome to my show. Thank you, Rebecca. It's always a pleasure to be with you again and again. I I never tire of that. In fact, I always find uh, the stories that you cover topical, intriguing, and covered in a way that you won't find in mainstream media. Well, thank you. I'm really happy to hear that. And that is something that I always am happy that guests like you can bring out new perspectives and insights that we just don't find other places. And especially when it comes to, you know, information about our bodies. I mean, you know, you're the first person I think of when I I consider about this COVID-19 tracing because you've been working with those types of concepts for so long. And many people hear about COVID-19 contact tracing and they automatically think about mobile apps. But... I think there are a variety of tools being used for contact tracing. So I'm wondering, could you describe the various methods of, of contact tracing that currently are being used so my listeners are aware of those different methods and tools? Sure, Rebecca. Uh, we can look back at how health surveillance has happened over centuries of time. And more recently, say in the last couple of decades, Uh, there have been definitions about what manual contact tracing is. And the World Health Organization back in 2017 defined it during the Ebola outbreak, uh, for example, in Sierra Leone. And what they said was it's a three-step process. It's about identification, listing, and following up in order to have a reduction of the transmission of a pandemic virus. So we can look back to SARS Back in 2003, I used to work for a company that helped the Hong Kong government roll out within 48 hours a mobile app, which back then was based on um, the WAP standard, would you believe? Mm -hmm. Um, And it was very basic. Uh, You would um, SMS using your handset, your, you know, one and a half to 2G phone. You'd SMS a particular number and then you would be alerted as you were approaching a building that had a SARS-infected case. So that was called a mobile alert application. Um, And you still have these 
all around the place. So basically, it knows your cell ID. It knows where you are generally in the suburb or in the city. And it says to you, you know, you're approaching a building that has had a SARS infection. But after SARS, we had the avian flu. We had the swine flu. We've had MERS. We've had all of these small pandemic outbreaks. And many people were predicting that it wouldn't be too long before something like COVID slash two came out, COVID-19. And so we've had these manual contact tracing efforts in the past. We have had world health authorities and state health authorities follow a process of manual contact tracing. And if I was to say to you, what's our most up-to-date form of manual contact tracing, it sort of is like having, um, if you go into a building, for example, you go to your workplace, it's like a a register of who's visited that day and people record their name either by signing a piece of paper, uh, their time in and their time out and which rooms they frequented. Um, They used to have this in hospitals in Singapore called Contact Trace where they introduced an RFID card which would basically say for 30 days that visitor has visited a loved one in the hospital and here's their history of the visits. But basically as soon as someone was found to have COVID or that particular pandemic uh, virus, then people in their immediate family would be uh, notified and then beyond that extensions of places where people had frequented. And now what we're saying is, well, there's a chance for us to go automated. What if we didn't have to sign in? What if we didn't have to hold a contact RFID card? What if we just used our phones? And so is the the phone right now, it sounds like you're saying, is maybe the most widely used tool that's currently being used? or Rebecca, I would say we're still actually using paper and pen. Ah, uh, most okay. of the places I'm visiting, public libraries in Australia, uh, the workplaces, for example, may not have a, a written register, but they may have, if there's multiple door access, physical entry, they'll have a digital Google Doc or some kind of open document that people can sign in and sign out of. Of mm. course, our our entry cards are being used to know when we're entering or exiting a building, but they're also going to this second level, perhaps more trusted, uh, authentic signature or adding on a record or row. So I would say the most functional way that we're approaching these kinds of tracing applications is actually still physical and is still manual, but we're toying with the idea of going towards an automated platform that does either location or proximity tracking or tracing. Well, so based on that, and that's fascinating to me, Katina, thank you for that history because I I didn't even realize that that type of activity was going on as far back as 2003. That's really amazing. Um, Which tool have you seen that, uh, that you have observed is probably the most secure or privacy friendly type of tool currently being used? That's a great question. Um, reading the media, you'll hear, you'll hear different reports about different countries and their ability to launch a virus tracing app. So the first thing is that the most privacy enhancing approaches don't actually take your absolute location on the Earth's surface. They do mm. not track your location or identity. Uh, they don't determine your location, not precisely anyway. What we are looking at is more proximity tracing apps that say your relative position to somebody else is and perhaps enabled by Bluetooth. Um, 
if you were to say to me which country would I vouch mm-hmm. for the most in terms of the most privacy-enhancing tracing app, it would have to be Germany. Uh, oh. Germany did not go and rush out to deploy like most other nation states. They really took their time. They really looked at the GDPR. They really looked at how could they provide short-term identification numbers for relative positioning between two handsets. So how do we know that some people have come into proximity physically together? We look at where um, the handset is relative to the other. So if I'm one or two metres away from you, then perhaps that is within the contact tracing sort of cycle. And if I'm with you for a duration of between five and 15 minutes, then I would log you as being in proximity. But they've done that by adhering to encryption, privacy standards like short-term identification numbers that are swapped between the user's handsets. And they've done this in a way that says it will automatically delete after two weeks. Now, what's happening uh, in many nation states is that deletion is not occurring. The other thing is we don't have access to open source code so that we know what is actually going on between the keys being passed between the handsets. And then the other thing that is actually the most important is how that data then makes it from the handset to a storage location or then alerts the user that, hey, you've come into a con- a, to proximity with a confirmed case. So what Germany has done is that they've provided a QR code the minute someone has tested positive to COVID and then this code needs to be scanned into the person's smartphone physically. So there's like an extra step. And only when this has been done can an alert be transmitted to other phones that have been in the vicinity. And so most of the ones that are unfortunately not adhering to privacy standards don't even go through that QR code process once there is a confirmed case. They're just sending out the alerts via a central store to the health department and then to the users. You know, that's really fascinating, and especially the fact that they deployed that. They got it deployed. I mean, you know, here in the United States, um, and I'm based in in Iowa, um, I'm hearing on the news all the time the claims about spending time to put privacy into uh, the the contact tracing apps would take too long and, and, or it's, it's, you know, it's just not worth it because it's more important to do the tracing right away. But you're telling me that, um, that Germany did this and how, how soon did they get theirs deployed? I mean, did they think about this and have such an app ready to go because they they were prepared when the pandemic came or were they just able to get it, um, you know, engineered and implemented in a short period of time? Um, I would say Germany was sort of more latish to the race of COVID oh. apps. Um, mm-hmm. Countries like South Korea, Taiwan, China, Hong Kong, who have had many battles with pandemics over the last 20 mm. years or so were more prepared. As I said, there were already had been apps in the past launched uh, to try and look at this public interest of health surveillance and ensuring uh, a reduction in the transmission of the pandemic virus, whatever it was. But Germany said, look, we're going to take data privacy seriously and data protection is important. We adhere you know, to the GDPR. We're not going to be mm-hmm. like India or China that has created a complete visible movement profile of every single person that mm-hmm. is in their country. It's mandatory. It must be downloaded. 
um, and there's warnings if it's not. So they also didn't want to send things centrally um, and not detect users' location. So they, they spent the time. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of the Australian uh, government have said, look, we haven't got time to think about socio-technical issues. We're just going to go in there, deploy. We're going to use some other nation states tracing app like Singapore. Uh, their trace together app also uh, using Bluetooth. We're going to adapt it a little bit to the Australian conditions and then it'll be fine. But not enough thinking was actually put into this, not enough piloting, not enough testing, mm-hmm. not enough co-design. Actually talk to your publics, talk to your citizenry, know what is required. And so most nation states are going through what I would call a digital transformation at the moment. They have digital transformation agencies that actually look after these kinds of mobile government apps, whether it's for emergency management or otherwise, voting or, or, or sharing, you know, your thoughts about uh, uh, services that are required in planning. But Germany didn't rush. And mm-hmm. that's why it's being touted as the best sort of available app at the moment that's being run uh, by government. They have like these contingencies, if I can say, that enhance privacy and that dilute it. What I really love what you said about their app too is something that drives me nuts here um, in the U.S. and especially in Iowa. In Iowa, uh, and I love Iowa, don't get me wrong, but they they came out very soon after the pandemic was uh, upon us with a test Iowa site uh, where, you know, you could see if you possibly, probably had um, COVID symptoms. But what bugged me was uh, they were asking for very specific things like your exact birth date and your exact, you know, where you actually lived and and other very unnecessary types of personal information that didn't really seem like it was necessary to, uh, you know, track the the COVID problem. So I love the fact that you said that they didn't in Germany that they considered that and didn't go to that type of detail. Um, yes, yes, yes. I think you're right. Full names being registered, age, the postcode, your mobile phone number. These are actually uh, privacy issues, mm-hmm. um, and I think they are similar to those that you mentioned in Iowa. I mean, definitely Australia requested that information on sign up. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I want you to, before we go on and get into some more details, I'm just curious about these claims. And I don't know if you've heard them as well, but I kind of mentioned them in the the, um, opening about how there's all these claims that uh, these tracing tools are being loaded into our Android and Apple phones without our knowing about it. and that it's being used for a wide range of other purposes. Now, personally, I have an Android phone, but I have very, very few apps on my phone. So when I look at my apps, I don't see anything like that. But have you heard these claims? And are is there any truth to these types of claims that you are aware of? Um, let's start by decom- sort of compartmentalizing the problem. The first issue was that governments raced to deploy COVID-19 apps, whether it was COVID-safe, Trace Together, whatever the name is, and they realized they could not do it on their own. There were a lot of Mm -hmm. issues with Apple's iOS 
on the iPhones because they're privacy-enhancing applications and operating systems. They thought they could write these apps that they would work without being fully tested, without developer support from Apple or Google, and of course, they failed. Most of these apps do not work, Rebecca. And so they've had to call in the experts, obviously the people who created the operating systems for these mainstream handsets. And they've gone to Google for iPhone and Android, and they've gone to Apple. And so what I think we'll talk about after the break is what did Apple and Google respond when they came to the rescue to try and ensure that there were being proximity reads in contact tracing when these automated apps were loaded onto the mobile phones. Because until that time, we have evidence to suggest that Apple phones were needing to have the app running in the foreground. Uh, You needed to do certain things for it to work. Sometimes it would be asleep and the Bluetooth wouldn't register between two phones. It takes three hours to register one proximity tracing. And so we've had this explosion of technical issues because governments thought we can do this on our own. We don't need like a public-private partnerships, we didn't have to go into business with the actual uh, developers of these operating systems. We can do it ourselves, and they fell short. The proximity apps, the contact tracing apps on the phones for, for the vast majority haven't worked successfully. If we were to say how many people received mobile alerts, it would be in the dozens in Australia at most. How many of these were actually covid um, infected people that warned other COVID-infected people that you came into my proximity, that's why you have COVID, the answer is probably one in Australia. And so we had health authorities going, oh, there's been an alert that's been sent to us on our um, storage service saying there was an infected case. Now what? So governments had not even communicated from the, the digital transformation agencies that built the apps to the actual health departments this is what you're expecting to receive. And this is what you're going to do about it once you receive this automated alert. So there's been this value chain that's been disrupted and not a good process in communication as far as I'm concerned. Oh, my gosh. Well, there's so much more to talk about that. So <laughs> definitely we do we do have time right now for a quick break. And, you know, what you mentioned is something that I know that you know is my pet peeve, not testing applications enough and not thinking through the engineering well enough, but we'll get into some more of those issues um, after we come back from our break. So I'm speaking today with Ubervalence and privacy expert, Dr. Katina Michael, about COVID-19 tracing tools and related privacy risks and consideration. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, what we're talking about right now, as well as other types of show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com, and also, of course, through my PrivacyGuidance.com website. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, research, report writing, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyguidance.com. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyguidance.com for help and answers to your questions. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The Privacy Security Brainiacs team wants everyone responsible for security, privacy, and compliance to stay up to date with the latest news, risks, and security and privacy practices. Check out their growing library of topics not offered by others. Privacy Security Brainiacs also wants every business to perform automated risk assessments, which are free or value-priced for all types of security and privacy topics. You need to find out more about Privacy Security Brainiacs. Visit PrivacySecurityBrainiacs.com. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. I'm speaking today with Ubervalence and privacy expert, Dr. Katina Michael, about COVID-19 tracking tools and tracing tools and the related privacy risks and considerations. So before the break, uh, Katina and I were talking about the Android and the um, uh, Google or Apple, the iOS operating systems and, you know, what Apple and Google are actually doing. So, Katina, what are some of the responses that Google and Apple have had to either their activities or these claims that are coming out? Uh, It's really interesting because we keep identifying just Apple and Google, although we know there are so many more handset providers on the market. Of course, those based in in, out of China, um, even our Microsoft kinds of phones. But let's just say Apple and Google have the majority market share. And so governments realized, lo and behold, they couldn't get the apps working, the contact tracing apps, the way they wanted. They called for help. Apple and Google came to the rescue and they said, it's okay. We've built a technology in our operating systems. We can tell you why. This, you know, Sometimes the handsets are, uh, are asleep or why you're draining so much of the battery uh, based on this proximity, why it shouldn't have to run in the foreground and so forth. And what they did is on the... 11th of April this year, they launched sort of a, uh, a notification um, that said, well, look, we're going to help you governments by responding in two ways. So in May of this year, the companies released application programming interfaces, APIs, that enabled interoperability between the Android and Apple devices, right, the iPhones, mm. using apps from public health authorities. And the official apps were available for users to download via their respective app stores. 
and then they adhered to the local market. So Australia's COVID Safe had an update. This is after Australia had already released their COVID Safe app, their contact tracing app. Now they had uh, Google and Apple intervene, sort of fix the errors, and there was another release. Well, lo and behold, mm-hmm. most citizenry didn't go back to the app stores to download the latest version. Okay, that's one of the problems. And mm-hmm. even if they did, we're assuming that people that downloaded actually knew about installation. That's that's something that you know is a socio-technical issue. But the mm-hmm. second thing that Apple and Google has done is they've worked to enable a broader Bluetooth-based contact tracing platform by building the functionality into the underlying platforms, into their operating systems. And they're saying, this is now not a bolt-on. We have provided the level of detail required in our operating systems. We've made changes so that the broader ecosystem of apps in government health solutions actually is now working. We've provided privacy and transparency and consent through this process. Um, Rather than it being centralized, we, we are going on about decentralized contact tracing solutions and they're more privacy enhancing, but they are also allowing things by not just proximity tracing, but giving location tracking options as well. And I want to reiterate this important point. They are not performing mandatory location tracking on their platform, on the iOS or the Android platform. What they're saying is if a government wants to work with us and they are adhering to location tracking and contact tracing, then we will have that function enabled already. And that's where most privacy advocates have said, what are you talking about? Why are you doing this? Isn't what you're talking about providing consent, transparency, privacy, simply going to be about contact tracing? Contact tracing is only when handsets come into proximity. It's the relative position. Mm -hmm. But they're also advocating, this is Apple and Google, well, what if the governments we are working with to help them with their apps, with our handsets and our operating systems don't want just contact tracing, they also want invasive location tracking. And that's at a state level. So if a state in America says, no, we just don't want contact tracing. We also want location tracking. Apple and Google have basically said, they've pronounced clearly, we've got the option ready if that state government or that nation state wants that. Wow. So so when folks update their operating system on their phones, then you're saying that if they get the latest one, probably one of the updates will be the capability. It's not actually doing these things automatically, but the capability is there. And so the contact tracing apps can then use that capability that now exists in order to get access to the location if that's the way that app has been engineered Am I saying that correctly? Perfectly. So you need the most up-to-date operating system and you need the most up-to-date COVID safe tracing and or tracking app. And if that is a tracking app that that state government has instituted, yes, of course, it'll use Mm. the underlying platform to toggle your location via various means. It could be via the sensor in your handset. That's Mm -hmm. a GPS handset solution going on the global positioning system chipset. It could use a mobile approach like signal strength in the network to determine where you are. It could use something called cell ID, 
just give me a bit of a blurry understanding of where that person is. I don't know. I don't need to know where exactly they live or where exactly they are, movement by movement, you know, car by car or pace by pace. Just give me that sort of fuzzy cell ID. So depending on that level of network level visibility, then it depends how that government has requested the institution of that contact and location tracing. But there's a third thing that could happen, Rebecca, and mm-hmm. people have put forward this notion of, and this goes down to the heart of Ubervalence, it's not mm-hmm. just identity, right, contact tracing, it's not just location, e.g. location tracking apps and geofencing, but it's your condition as well. What if we could mm. save you the test of COVID and say, we know by your movements, we know by your stress level, we know by your temperature level that you possibly should get tested for COVID because you're carrying all the symptoms. And that's like your last mile Fitbit solution. And Fitbit went into business there with Stanford for a little while trying to look at innovations that could help us preempt whether someone may have symptoms of COVID or not. But as we know, COVID doesn't always present symptomatically. There is a lot of asymptomatic cases where people are continuously healthy, not realizing they're infectious. Yes. Well, not only that, I mean, it's it's a brand new virus, so people don't know. I mean, just the scientists don't know all the full set of symptoms, right? But then as you're you're describing that, I'm I'm thinking, okay, so it's artificial intelligence or AI. It's basically mm-hmm. employing AI to determine this. I'm thinking, how are they how did they test it to make sure there's there's not bias because the entire breadth of population is so diverse and I just can't uh, I mean I'd, I'd love to see the studies and the the testing they did to ensure that there was no bias in those uh, types of results. So what would I see if I wanted to see see the results of that testing do you think Katina? So, so right now this is all, the study that I mentioned at the end between Fitbit and Stanford was pretty much people donating their Fitbit data and ah. trying to go using an AI sort of package that would say, okay, you know, and then we've got a validated test in the real world to say, yes, it's, you know, we can see via the symptoms, we can see by the movements, we can see via, you know, the 14 different sensors on the Fitbit that, yes, actually that validated infection um, that happened in the in the real world actually could have been simulated. We could have followed it. We could have seen that. But I, mm-hmm. I agree with you. Although AI is packaged in our arsenal of potential responses to pandemic outbreaks, particularly mm-hmm. if things things went more viral than they were already, if that makes sense. I mean, mm-hmm. qu- quietly, what's going happening in the world today is out of control, if I can say, given the pandemic. But it could have been more out of control with higher levels of transmission and higher levels of death. We're just fortunate that this pandemic has a different kind of cure rate. It's still horrific, but it's not of the type that says one in two people die or one in three die if they contract COVID. For now, our children, for the greater part, have been spared. Under 20-year-olds are pretty healthy generally. They seem to be fighting back on the COVID. Um, But we have had cases of four- and five-year-olds dying as a result Mm -hmm. of infection. But if we were to model this on mass scale, say globally, and look at quarantine zones, movement zones, zones that allowed people to actually keep going with the world's um, activities, this is when the notion of 
digital hygiene certification has come through. And it's not just one or two or three nation states that have said, why don't we go into this as digital certificates so the people who have had COVID already or the, the, the people who are healthy can keep going in the world, the rest of us self-isolate and quarantine. Well, that's also going to introduce bias, Rebecca, unless mm-hmm. there is 100% of testing. Um, mm-hmm. And that's not, that's not looking like it's happening. But I do want to allude to three or four other types of tracking capabilities. We've had oh, yes. wrist, wristbands instituted mm-hmm. um, in different countries, um, like Bulgaria or South Korea. We've had anklets uh, and bracelets, anklet bracelets, the same ones that are used for pedophiles, being used for people who are defying quarantine orders. We've seen number plate recognition occurring uh, in Australia during the Easter holidays. Uh, ANPR, automated number plate recognition, was being used to basically look at which people were doing non-essential travel, e.g. not to a doctor and not to a supermarket, and they were being stopped and fined. Uh, people loitering, and that was being determined in different countries using mobile phone location information. So if you were stationary at a park for no particular reason and you weren't exercising, well, what are you doing there? There was a uh, uh, you, you would be befriended by a friendly law enforcement officer. Um, there have been geofencing capabilities, and this is, for example, in Taiwan, where uh, people have been asked to be in quarantine a minimum bounding rectangle is placed around their home location. If their phone battery dies, if the phone is left behind and stationary for too long, they would get a knock on the door or a, a visit. You know, what's happened, there was one young man who was in quarantine who had fallen asleep and his battery had died. He got a call within 45 minutes at his door uh, by oh law enforcement authority. So what we're seeing, and in India they have movement by movement, that's location movement. But it begs to ask the question, while we're putting all our uh, energies into mobile apps, wristbands, watches that you can take off, and these are the different form factors across the world that have been Mm -hmm. instituted, what happens when people don't have a mobile phone? Mm -hmm. Uh, MG Michael, my husband, does not have a mobile phone. What happens when there is one phone between three people or a household, in the case of my uh, elderly parents? What happens when the apps are just in a foreign language? They're not in a language understood by the user. What happens if the handset you have is a feature phone and it's not a smartphone? You can't download the apps. What happens when there is um, pressure and stigmatization based on the download of an app in countries like Malaysia, in countries like Thailand? And they're saying, you know, what if I can disclose with my movements that I'm gay, lesbian, or queer, or transgender, and you determine that. So there has been a great revolt um, against these apps where the uptake has not been saturation. In fact, in Australia, we're still announcing figures, although there's never been a published graph. I've had to determine that graph using public data of showing how many adults have actually downloaded the COVID tracing apps. In Singapore, it was only 17%. Of the adult population in Australia, purportedly it's been about 20%. In Iceland, it was a little higher, but then they said, what do we need the app for? People are isolating. So there have been a lot of socio-technical reasons why either people haven't downloaded the app, the app hasn't been technically working, um, there has been a loss of understanding of how agencies respond to the app, let alone infected users, uh, and then state health authorities, and then basically appeals by citizenry saying, well, 
like like in Iceland or Norway, well, what do we need these apps now? We're back to normal. Um, so it's been very interesting to see what I would call a mass market, a mass scale public interest technology be deployed and unsuccessfully at that. Not only a mass market, but it sounds like a mess of a of a way that they're managing the data access and the data accuracy too, from what you're describing, because, you know, as you were talking about all that, I'm thinking, okay, so first we want to find out the, you know, where or who it's not about where they are necessarily. It's about who is infected, right? That's how we started. Who's infected. Let's find out that. And then we can find out who they communicated with and it went from who is infected to where are they located and then it went to well well, let's determine what they're doing and then it expanded out to well now let's give this information to other types of entities beyond the doctors and physicians um, who are going to then proactively act upon this data who aren't acting on behalf of their health, but on behalf of other things. So it just seems like it's really been a Pandora's box that has been opened up. And, uh, you know, it's kind of gotten out of control. So, I mean, what do you see as what needs to be done to get this under control? Should we look at going to what Germany has done with theirs or I mean what is what is a way to start uh, making the the tracing more accurate uh, and more privacy friendly so I think you're right we're undergoing what most people would say a slippery slope function creep Mm -hmm. scope creep the whole lot Mm -hmm. Um, even pointing to Germany as best practice I still think there are some cons that it's not all beneficial. Uh, people have identified some of some flaws. Uh, so every every tool is not perfect, and we will never expect it to be perfect. But it can be refined over time. I think what we need to go back to is go back to basics. Mm-hmm. People need to wear personal protective equipment, right? PPE. We need mm-hmm. to wash our hands regularly. I had before, long before this occurred in two thousand and eight, I had a a guest speaker, Chris Del Mar from Bond University came to one of my workshops and he was part of the Cochrane collaboration, was really looking at pandemics at the time because we had experienced SARS and Avian and people were starting to talk. And he said, we can reduce the number of transmissions by washing of hands. That was his keynote talk. And mm-hmm. I hope my audience wasn't upset or sad at what they were listening to because this is one of the world's most leading experts telling us we could reduce transmission of common colds, of viruses, of anything by 30%. Um, mm-hmm. The question now we have with with what we're going through with COVID is whether it stays in the air or surfaces a lot longer. There have been lots of studies that have investigated this, but I would say people in public wear masks, all right? Personal protective equipment. We wash our hands. We use sanitizer. We are staying at home when our kids are sick. They don't go to school. We ourselves, if we're unwell, we, we self-isolate. We don't spread it to the rest of the house. And this could be for a, a common cold. But mm-hmm. what I want to see is a return to that because what we do have and what has worked in the past is manual contact tracing. doesn't matter what pandemic it's been in the last 20 years. Manual contact tracing, and we know that in America in particular there have been many contact tracers that are now frequenting families. 
because it all starts at home, right? If, if you're unwell, you, you, you request a visit to the doctor. The doctor tells you, yes, you're confirmed with, with COVID. Then what? Then the manual traces are deployed to basically say, well, who have you come into contact with? And they go out on foot basically and, and via reaching out via telephone to basically figure out where that spread has happened. But if we're all isolating and doing the right thing, semi-quarantining, if I can say that, and only going out when we should, we should that, that reduction will happen. And we've seen that in New Zealand. We've seen that in Taiwan. We've seen that in Australia. In Victoria at the moment, as of today, if people are seen without masks, if they're out and about, they'll get fined. And it doesn't, it's not about freedom at this point. It's about health. We have mm-hmm. to think about this in a different way. Our liberties are not being contrived. We're basically helping one another get through this pandemic so we can all get back to doing what we want to do. So I would stress sticking to age-old practices. Do we continue to toy with the new automated systems? Why not? It's not a, it's not a bad thing that we're trying to automate the contact tracing for the time being. It's just not working. It is terrible when I am seeing deployments where they are location tracking, they are doing movement by movement, because the thing that's happening here, Rebecca, that has never happened in the past is that through these automated contact tracing apps and tracking apps, we now not only know where you are, who you are, and what condition you're in, that's ubervalence, we also know the social network that you frequent one-on-one. That's something that has always remained private till now. No one's had a camera 24-7 showing who they frequent, who they see, who they meet at lunchtime. That has been a virtual social network that we've used via Facebook perhaps or other things like Instagram or TikTok. That's a, a virtual social network. But in fact, for the first time ever in history, we now have an automated social network process. It's not just proximity, if it's those algorithms, it's also location. Because what we're seeing is that, for example, one young man who went to four nightclubs in South Korea on one night infected all these people. He didn't know he had COVID. And the location tracking apps identified this, but they also identified where he was. So on the one hand, I'm very happy they were able to identify the people who may have come into contact with this infected person. But on the other hand, what does it say about privacy and our our social network? Well, it's becoming public knowledge. Yeah, so there's a way to do it. Like you said, there's the positive thing is that you could identify who might have been infected by someone who you know was infected and in that area. So that's good. But on the flip side, the thing that it seems like no one's thinking about um, and that you're describing is now all these other entities beyond the doctors who need to have that information for treatment, but like you were talking about law enforcement and, uh, you know, the, the question I got from from a company who wanted their employees to give them that their data for where they were going to be. I mean, all of that just seemed like... Um, it, it's taking advantage maybe or it, it's using contact tracing as an excuse to to you to get access to this data for many other purposes beyond which it was originally collected. And I think that's a really I mean that's a long time problem though, isn't it? Just when you collect health data about people, there's always entities that want to use it for other purposes. 
Definitely, and you're the expert there. I think what else I've claimed that's probably unique is that, okay, I get the location tracking bit, your movements are being followed. Well, what happens when just like we de-identify and then re-identify data, what happens when that relative location information from the proximity tracing can be locatable? So I'm going to give you a picture really quickly. Mm-hmm. Imagine I have the proximity of many devices in many locations. I don't know the X and Y coordinate. I don't know their GPS location. But by providing these on a visual map, distance-wise, Katina is a meter distance away from her child. Uh, Rebecca is uh, a meter distance away from the client. Okay, mm-hmm. And we superimpose this relative positioning because we know people's mobile patterns pretty well already. With three or four points in a day, we could probably determine 50% of America's population because Mm. we know movements, right? We get Mm. these movement reports. Google was publishing movement reports between states, how many people were staying at home, and they knew this because of their their map um, application, right, Google Google Maps. They knew this because we we don't know the person, but we know the flow of movement, and then it doesn't take long to actually track back to someone's home location using white pages illegally, might, might I add, but you can do it. What I'm mm-hmm. claiming here is that even relative positioning mm-hmm. can basically say, well, everyone knows Katina works at Arizona State University, so and her colleagues do. So I can work out the relative position from Katina to somebody else because I know her mm-hmm. identity, that's stored, but what I don't know is the X and Y coordinate, but it, it makes sense that we're co-located with our co-workers. We're co-located on a train. We're co-located at home. We're co-located when visiting a library or a bank shopping mall. And so what I'm saying is if we really wanted to, we could de-identify the location of every person and and go forward. Now, we may mature as a society where trust is built into the applications we create and we go one day, this is going to work because we've done this the right way. You know, what Google and Apple are talking about, we can institute it the right way. The question is, who has access and which nation states? The Australian COVID Safe app the data on that is stored on an AWS server, okay? It's an oh. Amazon server. They won the contract to the storage. Well, we still don't know. Our law determines that, in fact, it's now under the Cloud Act. So America can actually peer into this AWS server by right and mm-hmm. say we have the right because it's our American server you're storing your Australian information on. So we have a lot of legal issues, a lot of regulatory issues cross-border, even in-country, that haven't worked out. When do we stop the tracking? You know, when I delete the app from my phone or 120 days after COVID has been declared safe? When is that going to be, Rebecca? So, so uh, you're thinking yeah. a lot about a lot of things and raising some wonderful points in your, in, your, in your talk today. Thank you. Well, thank you. And, you know, we're almost to the end here. Maybe what would be... If you could explain maybe in 30 seconds to 60 seconds, what's the primary point you want to leave our listeners with today about COVID-19, contact tracing, and privacy? Well, COVID-19 is a real pandemic. We have to take health instructions really seriously. We need to wash our hands, use sanitizer. When we frequent places, follow and abide by the requested um, um, you know, registration of where you are. Uh, and use the apps with caution. Um, look at whether they're open source or not and whether they're even working. But basically rely on manual contact tracing, please. And if you're sick, stay home and get tested. 
that's my advice, Rebecca. Nothing more than that. That's great advice. Thank you so much, Katina. I always love speaking with you. Thank you, Rebecca. So today I've been speaking with Ubervalence and privacy expert, Dr. Katina Michael, about COVID-19 tracking and tracing tools and the related privacy risks and considerations. Please send feedback about this show. Would you like to hear more about this topic? Please let me know. I do want to hear what you think about it. Um, You can contact me using Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. And if you cannot make our scheduled debut show the first Saturday of each month, of course, you will be able to listen to the recordings at any time you want. You can find recordings of all my past shows on all those apps that you love to use to listen to your podcast. Or you can also go to the VoiceAmerica.com business channel website. Also, feel free to get in touch with me if you have any need for help with information security, privacy, or other types of activities. And of course, you can visit my YouTube channel, The Privacy Professor. Until our next show, ask those you do business with, um, who you go to the get health care from, who you work for. Are they doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them? Be privacy aware in the month ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live the first Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next time, stay safe.